And I remember years later, Steve Nash uh, bringing it to my attention. I was in the locker room uh, with Jason Kidd at a Phoenix Suns game, and, and Steve was ridden me pretty good in front of his whole team. He said, hey, everybody wants you to meet Coach Braun. He'd think I was good enough to play for him in college. On this episode of the Great Point Podcast, Ben Braun talks about a remarkable coaching journey, which took him from a small school to Eastern Michigan to major success at Cal, and about all the NBA stars and unique stories along the way, including why he didn't get Steve Nash or Dirk Nowitzki, but almost got LeBron James. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Our roster of guests has been quite impressive thus far. And today we add to that impressive roster by bringing on a coach who was a fixture in the Pac-12, formerly the Pac-10. Ben Braun coached the Cal Golden Bears for over a decade. He led Eastern Michigan to national prominence, including three NCAA tournament appearances along the way, bringing up some notable guys like Earl Boykins and Derek Dial. And most recently, he was the head coach at Rice. During his time as a college coach, he sent over 20 players to the NBA, and yet only one of them was a unanimous All-American out of high school. Now he's a college basketball analyst on television. Coach Ben Braun, how are you? Hey, great. Great to be on your side of the uh, ledger now, Adam. I'm I'm the media guy now. Obviously, a ton of great accomplishments, and we're going to get to all that stuff at the college level as a coach. But first, I'd like for you to take me back. Your earliest basketball memories. Well, I remember Adam playing at a young age and just really enjoying basketball. Baseball was my natural sport. Uh, I excelled pretty much in baseball and took it through high school. We played at New Trier High School. We were rated number one in the state. I had some basketball, I'm sorry, some baseball scholarship offers. I remember even visiting with USC's coach Rod Dado and having a chance to go down to LSU. So I I had some basketball opportunity or or baseball opportunities. But basketball has always been uh, really my passion. It was a bigger challenge for me. I've always enjoyed it. So really pr- pursued the basketball end of it and left baseball in the wings. And uh, I always joke Johnny Castino played behind me in high school, and Johnny went on to play for the Minnesota Twins, was a pretty darn good baseball player in his own right. But he really had the passion for basketball and uh, also played at New Trier. We were in a, was, then was called the Suburban League. Uh, Jim Brewer from Proviso Eats, Bob Lackey from Evanston, Corky Calhoun from uh, Waukegan, those are three prominent names. Uh, we were in a uh, really good league and uh, really, really enjoyed playing basketball at that level. And then uh, from there, uh, had a chance to go on and play uh, collegiately for a year. Uh, decided I wanted to become a little more academically oriented, which was smart because I, it was something I needed to do both for my career and for myself. Tell me about that. Did you end up playing college basketball in Wisconsin. Tell me about that journey. Well, it was interesting, Adam. Uh, the, the then Northwestern coach, Brad Snyder, came by after we had played in the state tournament. Uh, and I had, back in those days, it's hard to believe that I tell people they don't believe it. They, there was no three point line, but I had 10 three pointers that will go down as, as, as 20 points. But I was 10 for 10 from the floor. We won. We advanced to the Sweet 16 to play C.J. Kupak in McGraw Hall. And 
then Northwestern coach Brad Snyder was there and came by to visit me at high school, offered me a scholarship, and, and, I, and I'm really not proud of this, but I could tell you know tell you this for maybe some of the young listeners, my grades weren't good enough. And as much as I wanted to go to Northwestern, which would be right around the corner, you know, you had to have very good grades to get there, and my grades weren't good enough. So that was a good lesson for me, and I, I took that lesson in the, my coaching days that, you know, academics are important, and it, it, it will limit your opportunities if you don't do well academically. All right. Well, one thing that we know you have pulled off in, in your time is handling yourself as a, as a great college basketball coach. But when did you know that you wanted to be a, a college basketball coach? Well, my high school coach, John Schneider, uh, was pretty uh, famous high school coach in Illinois. I think he went on to win about 700, 800 games. And uh, he always thought I had the ability to coach. He, he encouraged me to go into guidance and counseling, getting degrees in counseling, thought that would be helpful. I used to coach in the summer at camps, and I always really had an itch to, to want to continue being that leader. I was always the captain of my team, so I, I really wanted to take that to another level and uh, I really to get to be able to coach at, at the high school level where I started. You had to be a high school teacher, so I got my teaching degree at the University of Wisconsin, uh, went to coach and teach in Racine, Wisconsin. That was my earliest coaching at the high school level, uh, Park High School, and then I went on from there and the coach at Siena Heights College, which was a, uh, a first-year coeducational school, and that was a challenge in itself. I was, I think, at the ripe age of 23 years old as a head <laughs> college coach. So imagine that. I was able to make some mistakes and not, uh, not have it cost me, but I uh, really kind of cut my teeth at Siena Heights College, coached there for eight years, and I can't tell you how invaluable that was. It was a great school, a Dominican school. I uh, got my master's degree from there, uh, excellent academic school, but really had a chance to kind of learn the, the ropes in coaching. And, uh, that's where I started my coaching career. And never forget my first game, uh, we, I recruited a player out of the dorms who was 6'10", and he promptly went the wrong way and scored at the wrong basket in my very first game. So that's, that's how my college career started. That, that can't be true, Coach. <laughs> no, actually, to, to be honest, I think he shot the ball, but he was so bad he missed it. And one of his teammates went out and blocked it into the stands, and then we went the other way, or something along those lines. But that is a true story. And, and uh, you know, guys were so nice to me when I took that job. Nobody wanted to play us because we weren't very good. And, and suddenly we went from 20 losses to 24 wins in one year. So I learned very quickly the value of recruiting. We spent a lot of time getting players there and developing and uh, back then we had a JV program so we were able to have our young kids play and develop at the JV level so uh, that was really where I learned uh, the coaching from there and then from there I had an opportunity to get to Eastern Michigan University. Before we get into Eastern Michigan I have a couple questions about about your time at Siena Heights. So first of all you said you made some mistakes in your first year what kinds of things did you learn in year one? Well you know, Adam, I think every young coach goes through this, and I'm I'm really big on developing and helping young coaches. I, if there's anything I can give back to the game, and I'm doing it now, I'm actually doing some leadership training, I, I want to tell young coaches, you know, first you have to find a philosophy. You can't jump around from philosophy to philosophy. You've got to really just dig in and find a philosophy that, number one, is sound, and number two, is it, it involves your personality. You can't be somebody else's personality. You can't try to emulate somebody and be that person. So... I really, a lot of what I try to do is try to be, uh, you know, more mature and maybe act a little bit older. I didn't want to be too close to the players, even though I were in age. I wanted to separate, but sometimes maybe I was a little bit too tough. 
on the players, and, and uh, I learned quickly that you had to have a relationship with those players. I actually had the perfect chance to be have a relationship because of my age. I was closer to those a lot of those players in age than most coaches were. So I, I really, after a while, developed the ability to use my age to my advantage and, and get to know the players more personally, get to know their families, you know, get to know their friendship, get friendships, get to know their girlfriends, their interests, their academic interests, interests outside of basketball. And then I became more comfortable being being a really a better coach from that standpoint. So, uh, you know, I was able to learn uh, on the fly. It really was a great place for me to enter into my coaching career. You talked also about the idea of recruiting to Siena Heights, which obviously comes with its own set of challenges. So how did you get talented players to come there and, and have such a quick turnaround in terms of the winning? Well, we, we were lucky, Adam. We, we were uh, – Adrian, Michigan, where Siena Heights is located, was located outside of Detroit. And really a lot of the players we recruited were – what you might call the second and third players, the guys that were role players on their teams out of the, the inner city of Detroit, uh, kids and families that wanted to get away and get a good education, maybe get out of Detroit, move to a, a good op- opportunity. So I really got to be uh, befriend a lot of the coaches from the PSL, even some junior college coaches, and, and they thought Siena Heights was a great location for some of these young men to continue at the collegiate level. So we really did most of our recruiting in the Detroit metropolitan area. Some of those players were guys that, as it ended up turning out, were, were really Division One type players. They just didn't get the notoriety, they didn't get the accolades. And so I was fortunate to get some of those guys to come to play for us at Siena Heights College, and we had a lot of success at Siena Heights. To this day, I, I remember Joe Dumars even reminding me, we played Joe Dumars when he was at McNeese State, and we lost to them in overtime and should have beat him. And so we had a pretty good team, even at the small NAI level. We were able to play almost at the level of some, you know, Division Two and some low level Division Ones. And so we ended up having a pretty good teams, and uh, I enjoyed my time there. But that's how we did it. We recruited basically from that, from that area and, and used the academic, I think, offerings from Siena Heights because it was a great, great academic school and uh, it really helped a, a lot of young men in their careers. How good was Joe Dumars at that time? It was awesome. He, he, yeah, I have a great story, and Joe remembers it to this day. I said, Joe, we almost beat you because back then I, I developed what was called a triangle two. And then he, I remember him telling, telling me, well, Coach, triangle two and backs and ones aren't, they're not so, they're not so unique. I said, oh, yes, it was because I went triangle and I put two guys on you. So it was <laughs> unique. You know, I didn't go triangle two on two guys or, or back in those days. He, he was that good. You had to put a guy in front and a guy in back and uh, we had a player named Lawrence Miller that was trying to keep him in front of him, the best defensive player I might have ever coached. He was phenomenal, but, boy, he needed every help he can get. Joe Dumars was a very special player, but, uh, you know, his career obviously goes on and speaks for itself. But it was a memory I'll, I'll never forget and, and was able to joke about, you know, years later. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So in 1985, you end up taking a position on the Eastern Michigan coaching staff. Tell me about how that came about. Well, I decided after eight years, Adam, to, to take an associate coaching position, and Jim Boyce was kind enough to contact me and, and uh, have me uh, join his staff. He wanted an experienced coach. Jim was a former assistant uh, at University of Michigan, great guy. And I remember uh, taking that leap and thinking it was time. I'd been a head coach for eight years, and I thought it was an, a great opportunity for me uh, to get to the Division One level and really help Eastern Michigan, who had been kind of down in the luck over the years. And uh, no sooner than I got on the job, I think it was a month and a half later, Jim Boyce decided to resign, which was you know, news to me. I didn't know he would, but I never forget him telling me that he thought it was time to step down because he eventually he was going to do that after the year. But he actually did it for me. He said, I want to, I want to give you the opportunity to coach this team. You've been a head coach. You'll do a good job. 
and I don't want to wait to the end of the year. And as much as I try to talk him out of it, he, he insisted on, on stepping down. So I ended up becoming an interim coach and coaching that team. And uh, I remember taking that team. Uh, we had to play, uh, I think it was Notre Dame and Notre Dame and lost in overtime. So we did a pretty good job with that team. And he beat a Bobby Nichols coach uh, Toledo team and ended up getting the head coaching job there. Gene Smith was the athletic director at the time. And Gene uh, ended up hiring me. I was his first hire as a Division One coach. I think I did a pretty good job uh, for him, and we ended up in a year or two, uh, you know, winning a, uh, the first school, uh, first ever Mid American Conference Championship. So, uh, have some pretty good Gene Smith stories, but we can get to that later. But uh, he was the guy that hired me at Eastern Michigan. So you're there just to, like you said, even less than two months, and Boyce tells you he's stepping down, and, and you're going to be the guy. You'd been coaching Siena Heights, and all of a sudden now you're going to be the head coach at Eastern Michigan. Granted, at the time it was on an interim basis. What else do you remember about that day? Well, I, you know, kind of interesting. And, and, and the funny story behind it, it's, it's funny today. It probably wasn't as funny at the time. But, you know, most of the guys and the kids on the team didn't think I was going to get the head coaching job. And, uh, and then when I got the job, uh, I had a tough uh, I had the tough task of meeting with each individual player. And I remember at the time making the decision that some of the players aren't, weren't going to return because I didn't think they were serious enough, both academically and even in basketball. So, we had nine players that were on scholarship that the following year were not on scholarship. And I don't know if you can do that today. I didn't so much kick kids off the team, but I thought that the school needed and deserved a commitment from the players who were in that program. I didn't like the way that they were competing for Coach Boyce. I didn't think they were very serious about basketball and so and their academics. So uh, I ended up getting every one of those players a scholarship. I actually sat down with their parents and, and, and them individually and got them scholarships to Division II schools, a couple of Division I schools. But we started anew. We started with nine new players the following year and kind of rebuilt that program. And uh, I don't know if you remember Grant Long, but Grant Long was one of the players that decided to stay on. And we kind of joke about it to this day because he was having second thoughts because all his friends were leaving. But he decided to stay in there, commit, and the rest was history. He ended up being conference player of the year, played uh, 12 years in the league. A phenomenal college player, player of the year, and a phenomenal NBA player and uh, ended up being quite a leader right now. I think he's still with the NBA uh, with the Detroit Pistons. You had enormous success at Eastern Michigan. You coached there for a decade. You ended up going to four postseason, three NCAA tournament berths for Eastern Michigan over the course of a decade. That's just almost unfathomable. And a lot of talent came through that program. In addition to Grant Long, there was also what people may remember, the backcourt of Earl Boykin and, and Derek Dial. Tell me how you ended up forming that backcourt. Well, you got to add Brian Tolbert to that list. And Brian now lives uh, close to me, and I, I'd hate to leave him's name off. Brian Tolbert's the kid that after we beat Duke in the NCAA tournament, we then played Connecticut with that team. We had a very good team. We were nationally ranked uh, like third-leading scoring team in the country, and Brian Tolbert had 36 points on Ray Allen. So i got to mention his name, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek For sure. Died. Derek Dial ended up going to the NBA, and uh, people forget he was a walk-on at Eastern Michigan. So I tell that story to young men all the time. You can you can be a player that makes it. It doesn't matter about your accolades, but he started out as a non-scholarship player at Eastern Michigan. But uh, you had Brian Tolbert, you had Earl Boykins, you had uh, Derek Dial, and a, a couple players, Darren Wilson, and that team was good enough to beat Duke pretty decisively and really should have beat Connecticut that year. We were up 16 points at half and ended up losing, but uh, we had a very good team, and we won 18 straight games that year. We won the Mid-American Conference for the third time, and, uh, you know, we had some very good players, very committed players, and by that time, we'd had some success at Eastern Michigan, so playing the, we were playing the standing room-only crowds, and 
so it was it was quite a memorable team. Would have been might have been the best team or one of the best teams I've coached. So uh, we were able to keep things going there. And then again, most of the players we got were uh, Michigan area kids. Although Earl Boykins was from Cleveland, and uh, people ask, how did I recruit a five foot five, 130 pound guy? How did I know he'd be good? And I have an old recruiting adage, and I use it this way. I say. If you're not sure if a player's good enough, ask yourself, would you want to play against him? And I looked at Troy Boykins and I said, if he, we don't sign him, he's going to Kent State. And I sure didn't want to play against him for four years. So we signed him, and the rest of his history he ended up leading the country in scoring. His team ended up uh, the year I left Eastern beating Michigan the next year. And as I said, we had a lot of success with Earl. And he ended up playing 14 years in the NBA. Take me back to the first day you saw Earl Boykins play <laughs> high school basketball. Well, Gary Waters was my assistant coach then. He was back at Cleveland. You know, now he's a successful coach at Cleveland State. He said, Coach, you're not going to believe this kid, but you like small kids, so you're going to like him. But watch this kid play. Just uh, don't get hung up on his size. And as much as he said that, it was hard not to. Again, 5'5", 130, although he went on to bench press about 350. Uh, I just looked, I looked at Earl Boykins, and I said, Earl uh, is a player that you just don't want to play against. He gives you, night, he gives you nightmares. Uh, you can't take the ball from him. He can knock down shots, three-point range, never misses a free throw. I do have a good story about that. Uh, but he, you just knew he was going to be a tough, tough player and very confident, probably the, the, the most confident, and I'll add the word cockiest player I've ever coached. He, he told me he was going to play in the NBA, and I kind of smirked at him. But I, but the story I guess I was going to tell, I'll tell it now, is when you you know coaches at the end of practice say, all right, make 10 free throws and go home. And of course, a lot of the big guys never get to go home. They're there all, all night. But but Earl Boykins, uh, you know, after about two minutes, tosses me the ball and says, Coach, I'm out of here. I said, where do you think you're going? He said, well, I made my 10 free throws. I said, Earl, that's for everybody else. You have to switch 10 in a row. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's, that's not fair. I don't think that's fair. He started walking off the court and I knew Earl, you know, quite well. And I said, Earl, if it's just too tough for you, then go home and take a shower. He grabs the ball out of my hand. He said, nothing's too tough for me. And I'll be darned if he didn't go back out there and I'm in swish 10 in a row. And I have never had a player before or since that's ever done that. Uh, the last part of that story is when he was in, in the NBA, he calls me up and he was bragging how he led the NBA in free throw shooting. And I said, well, did you ever get a bonus for that? He said, yeah, they gave me a lot of money. I said, well, you need to give me half. I'm the one that helped you get there. <laughs> So I didn't get the check, by the way, nor would I take it if he offered. We laugh about that to this day. He was he was that mentally tough a kid, and you know I don't know if your kids are like that anymore. I don't know, you know, if you can challenge kids like that, they'll stay around just to prove you or prove themselves. And he did that. Yeah, Earl Boykins became an iconic figure even at the the NBA level. Just something special about him. And and you bring up a great point: the idea that it, you couldn't judge a book by its cover. I mean, he is the classic example. Did you know during your time? at Eastern Michigan that he could actually be an NBA player? Well, he, I knew he was special. And did I know he'd be an NBA player? No. Did I Did I think he had an opportunity, you know, like a Muggsy Bogues or a Spud Webb to help a team? Absolutely. He just he, he controlled any and every game he's ever played in. And, you know, he went on. I don't know if people remember this, but he went on, I remember one year, and he put 20-plus points on Michael Jordan, who was guarding him in the fourth quarter to end up winning a game. And I don't think anybody's ever done that to MJ. So MJ himself will tell you how tough Earl Boykins was. He just was a mentally tough guy. And the thing I like about Earl, uh, Adam, is he, he really understood the game. He had, he, has, he had as good an understanding of the game as any player I've coached. He understood both sides of the ball. He understood you know, when to get his teammates involved, uh, when to keep it, when to give it up, when to score. But he's just very stubborn. Uh, you know, he... 
made it hard to recruit, though, because when you brought good-looking guards into your program, he just told everyone they're not going to play ahead of them, and then they went elsewhere. So he was pretty honest about the recruiting process, but that's the price you pay recruiting a guy that's that talented. We were talking about Derek Dial, another guard that played the NBA for you during that stretch on those talented Eastern Michigan teams. Dial, you had referenced, was a walk-on. Was he a preferred walk-on? Well, he was. And we said that if you came to Eastern Michigan and you, you know, you, you stayed there a year and earned your keep, we'd give you a scholarship. I'll never forget this. Uh, I remember Derek coming, uh, you know, going into his home visit, and he was in his. You know, usually, as a coach, you're in a sport jacket and a tie. Daryl, Derek Dial was in a sport jacket and a tie. He wanted to impress me. He wanted to impress our coaching staff, and he did. I just, I had never seen that happen where a young man. You know, wanted to go to a school so badly and prove himself. His mother back then and grandmother, you know, said, Coach, I, we're not here to talk about basketball. You know, we know your team is good. We're here. I want you to tell me what you're going to do for my son in terms of graduating and, and uh, in terms of academics. So we spent the whole time talking about academics. And that's all they wanted to know about. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he was one of two players I had that graduated in three years. The other player was Dennis Gates at, at Cal, who graduated in three years, a, a player that played at Whitney Young High School out of Chicago, is now the associate coach for uh, Leonard Hamilton at Florida State. But, you know, that's pretty unique when you have players in this day and age graduating in three years. That means they got something on the ball. In 1996, when you beat Duke in the first round, you referenced it a little bit earlier, Coach K was quoted as saying, Eastern Michigan is very well coached, much deeper than we are today, much quicker than we were. How much do you remember about hearing that? And, and what was your reaction to that statement at the time? Well, Mike Krzyzewski, obviously, you know, an icon, somebody that, that meant a lot to me. And, and I've known Mike over the years. He's always been complimentary of me. And I remember his wife coming out of the stands and shaking my hand after the game, uh, Mickey, who's also a pretty unique person there, right? And Chris Collins, who was on that team. I think Tom Am, of course, coaching Johnny Dawkins. You know, you're not just beating a team, Adam. You're beating a program. So for us to, to beat Duke was a big deal. But I, I remember the players after we drew Duke – Everybody was excited, making a big deal out of it. Players didn't didn't really get overly excited. They just felt that, that they were good enough to beat Duke, and that's probably why we did. They didn't get giddy about it. They didn't get uh, overly hyped. They just felt that they were a better team, and they just thought they wanted to get a chance to prove themselves. But we we had a good team, and, and there was no slam against you know Duke or not playing well. Uh, we just happened to play well. So I joke to this day, I'm one of the only coaches undefeated against Coach K. So good thing we only played him once. You know, it was an honor, I mean, just for him to say what he said and obviously with the career and the program he's had and, uh, and the success he's had, it's, it was a big deal. One player you didn't get while you were at Eastern Michigan is a surefire Hall of Famer, and that's Steve Nash. And it wasn't because uh, – only because – well, before I even say anything, how about you tell <laughs> me the story about why you didn't uh, end you're up gonna with make, Steve You're going to make me tell it. That's even worse. I'm, I'm surprised you even got that information. Now i got to go back, and I can't tell any lies because it comes back to haunt you. But Steve Nash was a player that, that came uh, that wanted to come to play at Eastern Michigan, and like so many other coaches in the country, here was a soccer player that very few, if anybody, thought was good enough to be a, a, a good college player. And I ended up going to Santa Clara and, and – you know, played for Coach Davies and, and, and but, or no, or Carroll, I should say. Uh, but, you know, not a lot of people thought he was very good. Uh, and I had, had a number of players from Canada at the time. I said, boy, we don't need more players. I got enough, of, you know, players. And I remember years later, Steve Nash uh, bringing it to my attention. I was in the locker room uh, with Jason Kidd at the, uh, at a Phoenix Suns game and, and, Steve was ridden me pretty good in front of his whole team. He said, hey, everybody wants you to meet Coach Braun. He'd think I was good enough to play for him in college. 
I said, thanks, Steve, and he always rubbed it in. But, uh, you know, in my infinite wisdom, I, I passed on Steve Nash. But I wish I could tell you that was the only guy I passed on, but there were a few more doozies. But I think he was probably the most notable of all the players that uh, I, you know, I felt wasn't going to be a big-time college player. But it uh, shows you what, what college coaches know. They, they, it's not an exact science. I, I might have hit on Earl Boykins, but I sure missed on Steve Nash. How did he reach out to you in terms of expressing interest in playing for Eastern Michigan? Well, he knew the guys in the team. He knew all the guys uh, you know, from, from Canada that played on the team, and, and they, they, those guys came to me and said, hey, there's a really good player you need to look at. We uh, you know, we looked at him, and we just felt like many other college coaches that he wasn't at that level, and uh, boy, were we wrong. You know, Steve Nash ended up being one of the best players of all time, and uh, he just got better and better, and uh, you know I, I certainly use him as an example. When you want to plug in a tape and show a, a you know young players a workout tape and how to improve your skills, that's Steve Nash. I mean, he just got better and better with his career. But uh, you know it's something I have to live with. But hopefully it's uh, you know we can look back on that and smile about it. But Steve Nash was uh, you know quite uh, quite the player and you know quite the personality in the NBA. He proved himself over and over and over again. He ended up not only being a Hall of Famer, but he was MVP and. Uh, everybody who's played with him just, uh, you know, marveled at what he did on the basketball court and how he made his teams better. Yeah, two-time MVP. Pretty remarkable what, what Steve Nash accomplished during his career. Coach, we talk about the recruiting of players, but there's also the recruiting of coaches. And you finish up in, in 96, and you're one of the hottest coaching names in the country, certainly uh, in the mid-major ranks. Tell me about how Cal comes calling and, and how that process went down. Well, it was really tough at the time. I mean, we had some things going at Eastern Michigan, but when University of California called, and uh, and it called late. I remember that was during, actually, when the school year had started, and John Castro was the athletic director, Bob Driscoll, the associate AD. Bob's now the head, or is the athletic director at Providence, but they came knocking and pulled me in and wanted me to, to lead their program. And, and uh, you know, I had been to Berkeley a couple of times. Obviously, I, I knew about the Pac-12 or Pac-10 back then, and I thought it was an, an excellent opportunity uh, to take over a program that was kind of down on its luck. Uh, you know, they had gone through some sanctions. I think it was following the Todd Bozeman years. And, and so it was a tough time. You know, we were, I was going in there and they told me there might be a chance that uh, we didn't get a chance to play in postseason. We might be on some sanctions. But I was willing to take on that, that risk. And uh, we were also in the middle of, after one year of building a new arena, we ended up uh, playing that first, my first year at, at Harmon. Uh, I think we ended up going 16 and 0, just an unbelievable place to play if you've never seen it. But uh, I ended up taking that program over and uh, really was delighted with the guys I had on that team. We had a, a great group of guys. You know, I tried to coach that group like I had recruited all those players. I think the biggest mistake a coach can make is to take over a program and kind of put out a disclaimer that they're not his players. Anytime you coach a team, they are your players. It doesn't matter whether you recruited them or not. You treat those players in the same way, and, and that's how I try to treat that team. I respected every one of those guys and. And we became the best team we could be. And I, I really think we could have made it to a Final Four and competed for the national championship. And as you may remember, we lost Ed Gray, who was the leading scorer in the country, and had 48 points against Washington State, and he breaks his foot. So he goes out, and we play the whole tournament without him. But we ended up beating Arizona that year uh, in the last game of the Pac-12, and they ended up going on to win the whole thing. So we felt we were definitely good enough. And maybe if the breaks had gone our way, we might have been that team. But uh, we still went to the Sweet 16, played North Carolina, I had a good year, but uh, no regrets. And then the following year, we had to sit out with some sanctions, and we had to go play two years and then the Oakland Arena while they were building Haas Pavilion, uh, which was a good experience. We ended up drawing about 10, 9,000, 10,000 fans a year. And 
Uh, back at the time, we were out drawing the Warriors, if you can believe it. That's not, it wouldn't happen today, but we were then. And we were able to build up our fan base, and, and then we were able to put four more NCAA tournaments together uh, you know, over the next several years. So uh, Cal was a great place. I, it was some of my best memories with Cal. I want to go back to that, that first year that you were there. Obviously, a really tricky situation to walk into. You, you described the fact that you had had success at the mid-major level at, at Eastern Michigan. You got players that you're sending to the NBA. All of a sudden, this job opens up at Cal where the expectations were extremely low. And Todd Bozeman obviously had you know, walked away from the position unceremoniously, I, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. So how were the expectations and the challenges different from what you had dealt with while you were at Eastern Michigan? Well, you know, it's funny, Adam, I never tried to coach the team any differently. People said is that, you know, you're playing in a, a bigger arena, you're playing at a bigger level. And I said, you know, I don't know if that's true. We played at Eastern Michigan and we were at the highest level, you know, into a, you know, we were playing a pretty high level nationally rated team. So I don't think it was really any different. The Mid-American Conference was an excellent conference, great coaches, great league. Uh, and Pac-12 certainly was a you know a great league, but I, I didn't look at it any differently. I didn't try to uh, try to make any comparisons. I just went in there to coach the team the way I would coach any team and try to get the most out of all the players. And that team worked very hard, and uh, were expectations probably a little lower. Yeah, they didn't. They, you know, I think the team was picked down in the league. We ended up finishing second, uh, but. Really, I, I don't. I don't think you can look at expectations. You you have to really play to your ability and play to your potential. And I just felt that that team they had there. Uh, you know, I remember Prentice Magruder was a point guard. I remember Prentice back from Michigan, who's from Benton Harbor. Uh, I was familiar with some of those players. They had played at Eastern Michigan in the ABCD camp. Tony Gonzalez. Uh, you know, knew about Ed Gray, knew about some of the players that were back then. And so. Uh, Really, I just treated that team like I would any team I coached. I just felt that my job was to get that team and our staff's job was to get that team to be the best team they could be. And boy, did we become a good team that year. I'm always curious about this. You go from a position at Eastern Michigan where you talk about there's a lot of Detroit kids. Michigan obviously has a bevy of talent. We've seen that with some of the homegrown players that have gone on to play at Michigan State over the years. So you're coaching there for an extended period of time, and all of a sudden now you're in Northern California, and it's an entirely different recruiting base that you're going after. Where do you start? Well, it's interesting. I, I really feel, and I've always felt, that you, you should try to get your recruiting base close to home. So we did try to focus on California, even though Sean Lampley ended up being our first recruit from Chicago, my hometown, uh, and ended up becoming a leading scorer in the in the pack. And back then, but really, we try to we try to zero in. I remember getting the Collins twins and talking to their family, and they were about to make a visit to Cal, but because we were on probation, they didn't want to take a chance and, and have to sit out and not play in tournaments. And I don't blame them. It was it was a tough uh, pill for us to follow, but we felt that we had a really good chance to recruit them. And you know, recruiting was a little bit of a challenge being new to the area. Uh, luckily, we had some uh, coaches that had been there. I retained two coaches my first year there from the staff, so that helped a lot. And we were still able to get some some California uh, kids from the area that had ended up committing to Cal. But, you know, California is such a hotbed of basketball talent, and it's such a big state, and, uh, you know, great high school coaches. Uh, there were some solid AU programs. So we were able to get some really good players. Most of the players we did recruit ended up becoming uh, or coming from California. Uh, Southern California especially was very, we were very successful. We missed out on uh, – I remember Ray Young from – uh, locally, it was tough to get Ray to stay. I think he ended up going to, I know he ended up going to UCLA, but we tried to get some of the Bay Area kids to stay. We were able to finally get Leon Poe to stay at 
at home, and obviously Leon was a tremendous player and helped us become very successful. But, you know, we, we were able to still get some of the top talent in the California State inside the state, and that was important. Well, one guy that you sort of got was Dirk Nowitzki, <laughs> but he never ended up playing for Cal. Tell well, me why that didn't happen. Well, that's interesting. I get asked that question a lot. Uh, the two that got away, I don't feel like we lost them. I thought we had them, but we lost them to the NBA. You mentioned Dirk was the first one. Uh, I remember uh, an assistant on my staff, Scott Beaton, and Scott was really a very highly successful assistant to Mike Jarvis uh, when he was coaching at, at George Washington. And we went overseas and started recruiting a lot of international players because Cal was a great place for international players. Uh, we ended up getting a couple of guys that ended up going to the NBA from overseas. Uh, but at the time, Dirk Nowitzki was a young player going into the sophomore year, a freshman or sophomore. And we recognized him as a as one of the top players in the you know in uh, in Europe. And boy, was he talented! Six ten, six eleven, can shoot from three, handle the ball. So we made it, we put the full court press on him. Ended up going out there and then visited with his family, and they visited us. Uh, and I think things went well, and he was committed to come to Cal and. Things look really good, but then all of a sudden, uh, your biggest fear became, uh, you know, uh, 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 kind of a nightmare, uh, and that was that the NBA back then had what was called a hoop summit. It was a Nike hoop summit, and top all-stars got a chance to play in front of all the NBA teams, and boy, that's all the NBA needed, and I think it was Donnie uh, Nelson, Don's son, ended up seeing Dirk play in that summit, and they said, we're taking this kid, and we're going we're gonna to draft him, so that was it. We got close to Dirk, but uh, we weren't able to get him there, and uh, it's, it was unfortunate. But he was that talented. His his coach back then, his shooting coach Holger Gershwinder, I remember saying that he wished he had gone to college, but he was just too talented. And and uh, you know the rest is history. He was a phenomenal talent, and ended up becoming an NBA great. So uh, you you know you win some, lose some, but that that would have been nice to get him for at least a couple of years, right? Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because Dirk actually is be, has been sort of referred to as the guy that put the Hoop Summit on the map as opposed to the, the other way around. Because from that point forward, it seems like so many NBA teams were interested in who the hidden gems could be that could come out of the Hoop Summit, probably overrating some at times simply because of the success that Dirk has had. Well, I wish I could have found the bus that was taking over that game. I'd have diverted it somewhere. I'd have made sure I never got to the arena. But that didn't happen, and so the rest is history. But, you know, you're happy for kids and for players that have that opportunity. You know, so many players, so not, a, not a lot of players and that can go to the NBA level right from high school, and obviously Dirk was one of them, and he proved himself. You know, it took him a year or two to maybe to adjust, but his work ethic was unbelievable, his ability to, to shoot and, uh, you, you know, be a team guy. Very few players can do both. He was He's always been a team guy, and he's always He's been a prolific scorer, and he's also had a great understanding. You you forget, and I've done clinics over in Europe. Kids in Europe end up playing the game from the age of six or seven on, and they end up, you know, putting their backpacks in their lockers, and that's the first thing they do when they get to school. They they have basketball class, and they learn how to dribble. They learn how to shoot. They learn how to pass. They learn how to break a zone. They do that religiously at an early age, and so those kids are very, very talented. So it's not surprising to see a lot of the players in Europe becoming successful today in the, in the, in the NBA and the world market. In terms of recruiting kids in the States, what was your pitch? Well, at Cal, again, we, we were very fortunate. We not only played in a great league in a great location, but we had a great number one public school in the country. I mean, so uh, academically, so we were really, we had kind of the best of all worlds. And, uh, you know, we had, we had academic requirements that, uh, you, you know, were, were pretty stiff and we weren't, uh, you know, that, that, was challenging at times, but really, again, the reward of being in that kind of environment and having Cal, uh, 
you know, to to use uh, as a recruiting, uh, you know, tool. It really was was good for us because we were fortunate. So many players, uh, you know, wanted to also talk about life after basketball, and if they didn't make the NBA, you know, would a Cal degree help them? And obviously, Cal degree is pretty important. So uh, we were able to use the best of both worlds. And and Cal Cal was an attractive place to be. If you've been to the Bay Area, you know that's an exciting place uh, to be. It's uh, we had great crowds. We were second in the Pac-10 back then in attendance. Uh, when Hospital Building got built, uh, we were, I think, 10 or 11, 10,000, 11,000. We were behind, only behind Arizona for a number of years. So it was able, you were able also to sell that you're going to have a very large following and, and uh, an exciting place to be for your college career. And, and that was really uh, advantageous at the time. Well, you certainly picked up a lot of really talented players during your stretch. I mean, you referenced some of the NBA guys, Ed Gray, Sean Lampley, Jamal Sampson, and then... There's Sean Marks. I mean, the list goes on and on. You also said Leon Poe. Leon Poe's interesting to me because I remember when he was the number two high school player in the country behind LeBron James, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. uh, in the junior class. Well, those two ended up playing, and the, and the story obviously becomes bigger and bigger as time goes on, but they ended up playing on the same AAU team uh, right here, right in right in Berkeley, and played the, some of those games right on Cal's campus. So back then, the high school coach, uh, LeBron, was uh, Keith Dambrod, who was a former assistant of mine at Eastern, at Eastern Michigan, has now been a very successful, highly successful coach at Akron. But he coached LeBron in his early years, and I remember him calling me, and you know he obviously knew about Leon, but he said, hey, i got another guy you need to look at. Uh, and I remember watching... Uh, LeBron play as a freshman going out and watching him play actually football, which a lot of people don't know that. And football was LeBron's best sport. He was as good a football player as you'll ever see. It was phenomenal. You couldn't cover him. He could go up in the crowd, catch a ball, take it on the run, get to the end zone. He was just unstoppable. He was like a Harold Carmichael with about 30 more pounds and just phenomenal guy. But, uh, you know, I remember that and, and having he and his family visit our campus a number of times. I spoke at their banquet a couple of times, I think twice when they won state championships. So he had visited Cal, and, and uh, his mother, actually, Gloria, wanted him to go to Cal. And I remember looking her in the eye and saying, Gloria, as much as I'd love him to be here at Cal, I don't think he'll ever step foot in a college arena. I think he's going to end up being an NBA player. And sure enough, uh, much like Dirk Lewinsky, he ended up, Dirk Lewinsky ended up going straight to the league, and I think he got a couple hundred million dollar endorsement with Nike, and the rest was history. So, uh, you know, if you lose out to a player like that, he ends up not playing for you, but he's that talented. You, you know, you don't look back and say, what if? Because, he, you know, he's just, not only was he a great player, he's a great kid, great young man, uh, and he's proven that over the years with the way he's gone back to the city of Akron, he's done things for his city, uh, the loyalty he's shown, uh, Cleveland area, he just, you don't see that in this day and age. He's really a remarkable guy, and uh, you know, I've managed over the years to stay in touch from time to time. I've seen him, and, uh, you know, he remember those years. So it's kind of fun, and it's great to see the success he's had. Coach, when I was reporting years back on high school sports, I remember going to the ABCD camp, and I've referenced this before, but seeing LeBron James, while he was a rising junior playing the ABCD camp, he battled Lenny Cook in the famous game that everyone talks about that put LeBron on the map and people have said it it knocked Lenny Cook down a peg but I spoke to LeBron and interviewed him during that camp and he was just the national sensation he was it was his coming out party and I remember talking to him and asking him about the schools he was interested in and and I just remember being so shocked that he said Ohio State and Cal 
And I, I said, yep. how is there a connection to Cal? But there you well, go. You know, much, now you, know, I know. You, mentioned Lee, you mentioned Leon Poe, too, and don't underestimate the power of Leon Poe. Leon Poe had a very magnetic personality, and much like LeBron, you know, these are two young men that grew up with very uh, disadvantageous childhoods. I mean, without fathers, without, uh, you know, you know uh, really an ideal childhood. And, and they, you know, had a lot they shared in common. So, they became close, and Leon Poe is as great a story as, as you'll have as somebody that's made it from uh, where he's made it from, and, and true where he's made it from, the streets of Oakland, and you know, into cattle, and uh, you know, he's he's just a phenomenal story. Not only did he did he make it to the collegiate level and, and have success at Cal, uh, just had a phenomenal career, but then he goes on to the NBA, and he you know, here's a guy that's played on two or three different ACLs that he's had. Uh, you know, he's always had some injuries, and you just wonder what he would have been like if he never had those injuries. But even with the injuries. Uh, he ended up being as good a player as, as you'll see and ended up helping Boston win a, a world championship. Uh, they loved him. They, they hired him again back in Boston. He's working for the Celtics today. But magnetic personality, great great kid, great young man. And, uh, you know, he had a lot to do with LeBron's interest uh, at Cal back then. So I was very blessed to get to know those guys. And that's the beauty of coaching. You know, you if you coach long enough, you, you end up getting some pretty good relationships and, and you know, hopefully uh, getting a chance to help some of those young guys develop in their lives. Poe is a local kid, played at Oakland Tech, but as you said, later goes on to help you recruit LeBron James. But when did you know you actually were going to get Leon Poe? Well, you never knew you were going to get him. He had opportunities to go to, I think North Carolina was recruiting very heavily, Kansas. He was recruited by every school in the country, but there was something loyal about Leon. He, he just really felt loyal to his community. He felt uh, loyalty to the people who helped raise him that were right there. And I just don't think he wanted to leave that that uh, extended family he had. He didn't have, you know, maybe a lot of blood relatives that were living, but he had people who were who kind of helped raise him, neighborhoods and, and uh, you know, cousins and, and uh, guardians. And, uh, you know, that, that was really, uh, really huge in his life because it was important for him that the people was, who were meaningful in his life were there to kind of continue to be there for him, watch him play, and uh, he wanted to give something back to them too. And so, he ended up staying at Cal. He used to come to all of our games. He never missed a game. So I always felt that we had a good shot uh, because he enjoyed coming to the Cal games. It was a place he felt comfortable at. He really liked the guys in our team, and uh, he ended up staying there. So uh, Bernard Ward is a name that many people, if they don't know, should know. But Bernard was like a guardian to him and, uh, and was very instrumental in his life. And uh, I think he wanted to stick around for Bernard and his young son and just be in this area so he can kind of – uh, you know, be a leader in his in his own community. Coach, it seems like early on in your career, from the very beginning, you had a knack for recruiting, whether it was Siena Heights, and then, you know, you're 23 years old and you figured out you needed to get players. And then you go on Eastern Michigan, even though some of those guys may not be high profile, you landed some really talented kids and developed talented kids as well. You've had a knack for understanding talent, seeing it probably before other people do. But throughout your career, it was a staple that you were able to recruit. What do you think was it about your personality that enabled you to connect with these kids? Well, I wish I could take credit for that, uh, Adam, and tell you that it's Ben Braun's a wonderful recruiter and personality, and everybody just wanted to play for me. But, you know, you forget, and people forget that, you know, you have a coaching staff. And so your, your coaching staff has to be a conduit. Your coaching staff has to be an extension of you as a head coach, has to represent your institution. Uh, has to really do a good job with families and parents, high school coaches. And I was always blessed. I had really good high school, really good assistant coaches that connected with high school coaches, counselors, 
parents and those kids. And and then the other thing people forget is is the players on your team really do as an effective job as recruiting as anybody. And I and I've always said that that if the players on your team want a good program, they got to help recruit players to make their team better. And I've always had players that thought uh, you know as much about the team as they did about themselves and. They didn't have any problem recruiting better players that could help the team. And a lot of young guys today don't want that. They're afraid to go and recruit better players because they're worried about their own playing time. But I don't think that was ever an issue with our teams. Our teams wanted to get better and better and better. And as a result, uh, our players did just a great job recruiting. And then we ended up, uh, I think, ended up getting 24 guys going on to play in the NBA. I think one was a, one was a high school American. That was Leon. But those players ended up becoming good enough to play because they were in a good program. They were there with assistant coaches that worked with them. Uh, we had team success, and when you have team success, NBA teams are going to notice you. And uh, you know you're 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 lucky when you can get players that have that type. So we've always kind of got guys who are a little bit under the radar, but who also were players that you could tell and project were going to be very good players, if not at the next level, at least for the college level. How did you know who to go after? Well, again, you know, I was very fortunate. I had good relationships with my coaches did with high school coaches. And so with high school coaches, uh, you always, you know, you always have to keep your, your uh, you know, finger on the pulse. And so, you know, I was very fortunate from time to time a high school coach uh, would give me a, a high school coach would give me a call and say, I got a player I want you to look at, or maybe another coach that had, uh, would call me about a player in their league and, and they respected our program, our coaching staff, and say, I think you need to look at this player, get on him early, he's really good, and you, you know, fit your program. And so we were able to get on players really early in the process, and that's another key to recruiting. You can't wait till their senior year to get players. You have to get on them early, develop relationships, have them come to your camps, have them uh, come on your campus and see games as sophomores and juniors. So we always got the recruiting process done early and then as a result we were able to get players to commit so uh, you know a little bit of luck but also a little bit of planning and and again my assistant coaches were were, uh, and and players were a big part of that. All right so you have this wonderful success at Cal throughout your your career there you're coaching there over a decade then in 2008 the team is hovering around 500 you finish 6 and 12 and well again Pac-10 play at that time and then you lose in the in the NIT after that point, you were let go. So since I'm not there, and I, I don't know what goes on uh, in terms of the administration, in terms of the coaching staff, are they telling you throughout the season where your job status is? Do you know? Can you give me a sense of what that's like as you're you're sort of fighting for your well, job? Well, Adam, you know, it's interesting. Um, I always felt I'd be coaching at, at, at Cal for the rest of my career. But as you know, in this day and age, when you're coaching at a place for a dozen years, that doesn't always, doesn't matter what you think. It's maybe what other people think. So Unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, I was told that I had pretty much had a back then what was like a lifetime or long-term contract, and I did. So I had years of my contract. Uh, they wanted to make a change, and, and I wasn't going to resign. I had an opportunity to resign, but I decided to be let go. And uh, I really don't have any reservations about that. But you know, it, it was a disappointing result that the team we had that year was, as you know, came back to end up winning the Pac-12 championship uh, those players were pretty talented but we had some injuries that year and that's part of coaching you, you know I, I don't look back I don't uh, have regrets but again uh, enjoyed my years at Cal enjoyed the relationships we had we went to nine tournaments I think of the 11 years we were eligible for 12 and uh, five, or, you know five in the NCAA and three in the four in the NIT so we had some success there and we, we were a good team but uh, we kind of as a lot of coaches become you become a victim of, of success and when you end up uh, going to tournaments, 
uh, you end up winning, uh, going to Sweet 16s. I think the expectations grow, and you know whether it's media, whether it's your institution, there are people that want you to go and be even more successful. They want to, they don't want to lose in the first round or second round. They want you to go and get to a Final Four. So I understood that the expectations went up, and I have no problems with that. I I've always said I'd rather live with higher expectations as Paul Short than have low expectations and exceed them because. You know your accomplishments are always greater when you when you have higher expectations. So, uh, you know it, it was a little bit of a uh, you know it was a it was a disappointment. But I can't look back at my years at Cal and have any regrets. I had wonderful years, wonderful relationships, coached great young men, had some great uh, you know assistant coaches I was with. I had some disagreements with administration. You know, obviously when you're the coach and the AD that hires you is no longer there, it's always a little touchy. And so that's my advice to coaches today is. If an AD is willing to hire you, you know, go with that AD. And, and uh, but when a new AD comes in, sometimes that's a little harder. And uh, ADs have their own uh, ideas of, of maybe the other way things should be done, and that's their prerogative. That's why they get hired. So a lot of times you'll see changes made with new administration. I know you said no regrets, but a question that I, I like to ask coaches and players uh, about their history is: if you could go back and coach in one game again, what would it be? Well, I don't know. One game, that's a hard one. I, um, I, I really, I had that misfortune or the, or you could say the, 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 uh, the pleasure, because if you look back now, it is a pleasure to say I coached with Dean Smith at two different Sweet 16s. My luck is, you know, uh, we get to the Sweet 16 twice, and who do we have to score off against Dean Smith in North Carolina? That's not fun if you're trying to win the game. It's great for the scrapbooks and tell your children and grandchildren. But uh, Dean Smith was just, it was a delight to coach against him because he's a, he was a legend. Uh, I got to know Dean very well. He's pretty helpful to me in my coaching career. Uh, but I, I wish I could get one of those games back. We had leads in both games and gave up those leads. But I learned a lot from coaching those games, Adam. I, I remember Dean Smith decided to take our, our fifth leading score and, and put the clamps on him. And I didn't understand that until years later. Uh, he didn't care about our guys' score getting the points. He wanted to take our point guard back then Lorenzo Neely out of the game when we played him at Eastern Michigan, and that was the most effective thing I ever learned, that a team had trouble running their, their stuff and, and running their show when their leader, you know, you cut the head off of, of the leader. And, and he taught me a very valuable lesson, and, and Lorenzo Neely was one of the toughest players I coached, but he went right after who he felt was our toughest kid. And uh, it was effective. And then the last time we played him with, when I was a Cal, we had a pretty insurmountable, it looked like a pretty good lead going down the stretch, and then a guy by the name of Anton Jamison decided to put it in the high gear. Uh, he ends up scoring points in a hurry. We had an eight-point lead, ten-point lead down the stretch, lost it. Uh, I also remember Tony Gonzalez playing on that team. I couldn't get Tony back, reel him back in for, for the game before. We had Tony had a game of his life against, uh, I think it was Villanova, and everybody was talking about Tony as a story, being a dual-sport guy. And I, I was worried about that game because I didn't think he could he could keep up that pace, which it was hard. He, he couldn't. And at the same time, uh, North Carolina had Anton Jamison, and boy, did he put on a show. I think we must have got him drafted a couple notches higher after that game. But, uh, you know, if we could, if I could take that one back, or maybe we could have had Ed Gray play in that game. We really had trouble, trouble scoring that game. And, and here we're missing the leading score in the country in Ed Gray. And if we have Ed, who averaged 25 a game, we get him playing in that game. I think we might have ended up being able to close out that game. And I think we could have advanced because I, I look back into the teams in that, uh, you know, in that regional was, and, and, and start Sweet 16 and who would play in the next round. We looked like we could advance pretty far, but it didn't happen. So, again, not a regret, but just a, if it's a wish list, I wish we could have had one or two of those games back because, you know, it's 
would have been nice to see, you know, to get to a Final Four. Our teams were good enough to play in it. We just had the misfortune of playing against uh, two of Dean Smith's teams, and that's that's hard to do. And you know, he had some awfully talented teams. That's for sure. We did end up getting North Carolina back, and we ended up playing them at the time in the uh, Pete Bill Classic, in front of mm-hmm. twenty thousand people at Oakland Arena at the time. And I think it still might be a record for the most fans to watch a collegiate game state of California, and we ended up beating North Carolina, uh, and they were very talented, but we finally beat them. We beat them in the Oakland Arena at the time, and so we ended up getting them back uh, at least once, but uh, not when it counted in the tournament, so small consolation, but consolation nonetheless. You mentioned Pete Newell, obviously Cal, basketball coaching legend uh, amongst anyone who follows basketball. What did you learn from Coach Pete Newell? Well, everything. You know, uh, I didn't have the fortune of being coming an assistant for very long as you we talked about I was a head coach most of my career not all of it and having a guy like Pete Newell before that Hubie Brown was very helpful to me uh you know I've had guys that have been willing to help but having Pete Newell at Cal was just it was unbelievable he he'd come in and not only sit in on practices but we would spend time at my house we'd spend time in the film room we'd go out for coffee and breakfast we'd finish up at dinner at night and he'd be in the film room I, it just you know being with Pete Newell uh, as not just a coach, but as a friend and a mentor. He, he meant so much to me and our kids and the program. Uh, it was just, you know, it was, it was unbelievable. The way he saw the game, I think Bobby Knight chronicles it best. Nobody sees the game or saw the game the way Pete Newell did. He, he had such a great understanding for the game, spacing, relationships on the court, uh, pivoting, things that coaches today don't really spend time teaching, but he, he could break down a fundamental of the game, teach it to your players, help you to teach it to your players, and, and it just made so much sense. You know, uh, I spent time with a lot of the guys who played for Pete, and I got to know those guys, and I just was in awe at how much, how they revered Pete in and, and his teachings. And it wasn't just basketball, and it was also just their approach to life and the way they treated people. And, you know, Pete Newell was a special guy. Uh, he had a great way of challenging you as a person, as a player, but yet he wouldn't rip you. He might rip your behavior. He might rip the way you played. He would never rip you as a person, but he would he would challenge you to be better in everything you did. And you wanted to please Pete. You wanted to do the things he said, work on the fundamentals and get it right. And and he was really about detail. He he he. Nobody attended to detail as much as Pete Newell. He was an incredible detailed uh, guy. And, you know, he got out of coaching really early, but uh, uh, he's also the only guy that ever beat John Wooden eight straight times. So, uh, pretty good feat for a guy, you know, during his years. And uh, like I said, I'm just fortunate I was able to spend so many years with Pete and right up until the time he died, got to know him and were able to put his Pete Newell Classic on, play a number of good years. And, uh, you know, in honor of Pete, he'd come down and, and, and attend those games at the Oakland Arena. Uh, it was just a, a pleasure, but uh, got to know his family too, which was great. So uh, one of the highlights of my coaching career, not just at Cal, but in general, getting, getting to be uh, so close with Pete. After you were at Cal, it wasn't long thereafter until, you know, Rice came calling. Why did you decide to go to Rice? A lot of people said that's a tough job. Don't take the job. I had a couple other job offers, but Chris Del County was the athletic director. He was a former AD uh, at Arizona, uh, very close to Lute Olson. Lute told me it was a great opportunity. And, you know, I always felt that an academic school, you know, I felt comfortable in an academic school. Uh, Rice being just a, a an, literally an Ivy League school back in Conference USA, you know, very, very strict academically, but also just a school that stood for principles, did things the right way, and, uh, and not only that, but, uh, you know, really valued academics and, you know, wonderful place. Uh, my wife and I went down and visited the school and, and really uh, became enamored with the school and 
I was so impressed with, with the school because some of their greatest donors and their, their greatest contributors were former Rice players. So I felt that here's a place that their former players in this program are their greatest donors and, and, and are also successful even outside of basketball. When a, what a great place to be that you can recruit to where, where your former players are not necessarily NBA guys, but they're guys that are going on to become just highly successful outside of the game and they're, they're, they're giving back to their program. So I was really impressed with that. You know, the person they named the Fieldhouse after Bobby Tudor was a, a former player and ended up building that arena with the help of, uh, you know, other uh, Rice alums and Rice players, Steve Trauber, guys that played at Rice, Adam Peaks. These are guys that, former players that ended up giving so much back to the program. So that, that impressed me. They helped recruit me there. And uh, I knew it was a challenge when we got there. But, uh, you know, again, I, I enjoyed my time at Rice. We ended up getting to a postseason, something that hadn't been done in a number of years. We uh, won 19 games and proud of the fact we were able to beat uh, Memphis. That uh, They had never beaten Memphis. We swept Houston. I don't think we'd ever swept Houston. We beat LSU, beat TCU, beat Texas A&M on the road. Things had never been done before. So I was proud that we were able to take our program to a you know pretty good level. Uh, it leveled off. We Obviously, we lost some players due to transfer, and that's another subject, but it happens in program. It's happening more and more today. Uh, you know, we were we were bit by the transfer bug, and uh, I had to release you no, know, uh, you know, a staff member. So it was really a tough tough go for me. But I also again enjoyed that time at, at Rice, and again don't regret my time there. Uh, it was very rewarding, and I still to this day have great relationships with the players that are currently on the team, and with some of the guys that ended up graduating. They they put their time in, and they represented East, and they re- represented Rice uh, University with a lot of pride and and, and, and humility. And that's what I, the way I think it should be done at the college level. You resigned in March of 2014 from Rice. Will we ever see Ben Braun coach college basketball again? Well, you know, I, I think you know this. I don't know how many of uh, uh, you know, either my fans or fans know it, but I, I now uh, I've got younger children and uh, young children, my first children, and uh, with my son and with my daughter at young ages. Uh, it was fun having them there at games, but it's also been very rewarding, Adam, for me to be able to follow their academics, their their school careers, their extracurricular activities. I, I have the summers to do that with them and spend time with them. I've never had that time as a coach. I, I was, uh, you know, uh, very uh, uh, free with my time and back in the days when I was not married, didn't have children. I could, I could devote a lot of time to what I was doing, and now I with time I have with seeing my children, it's it's going to be tough for me to get back into coaching. I also had a situation where I had five ADs in six years, and I, that was no fun. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to ever go through that again, nor should any coach have to go through that. It's just tough. So, I, you know, I'd like to be able to control my destiny a little more and my time. So I'm very fulfilled being a college basketball TV analyst. Uh, it's been rewarding. I do coaching staffs. I do some leadership training, consulting, and, and that's been very rewarding. And uh, what I tell you, I'd never coach again. Uh, I, I couldn't say never, but but my inclination is to stay with with the uh, your side of the uh, your side of the ledger. I like being in the media. I really enjoy it. Find it rewarding for me because it's a way for me still to reach out and touch a lot of lives. And uh, that's what I want to do. I want to continue to help young coaches, uh, young players, anytime I can because I think there's a I have a lot to offer from that standpoint. Well, you talk about that leadership training for college basketball programs and as well as mentoring younger coaches. So what does that all entail for you? Well, it's some things that I wish I had had when I was a younger coach, but I think coaches today um, need, you know, if they don't need, they benefit from training. You know, how how do you 
you know, how do how do head coaches hire assistant coaches? What are what's their you know how what are staff and player evaluations? I think those are important things. How do they build a program? How do they build their organization within their program? Organizing a program is very challenging, and it's important that you you know your program is organized. And you know, how do you build and maintain team chemistry? Those are that's the age old question. The good the great coaches and the great teams have it, and the teams that struggle don't. Uh, you know, how do you establish your identity and your team culture and you know, how do you improve your players? What kind of programs do you set up to improve your players and, uh, and your relationships within your program? So I, those are the types of things that we, we harp on. I, I, I think I can help programs do that. I can tell them the things that certainly work, and I can tell them some things that I can promise them don't work through my experience and maybe save them some steps. But, you know, uh, it's important. You know, how do you deal with players that want to be pros? You know, you have to help players uh, channel their aspirations. How do you handle assistant coaches that want to become head coaches can still be there for their team and for their players. That's a that's really important in today's day and age. You know, if you're if you're not on the same page when you're trying to advance your own career, you can't possibly give back to your institution. You can't possibly give back to your program. And that's why I think so many young coaches today, you know, they, they suffer and, and and they miss the boat and they don't, uh, you know, they don't come full circle. So uh, those are the types of things we work on. And it's something you don't work on in, a, in one meeting. You have to have, uh, you, you know, some uh, maybe some. Relation, role relationships, player role relationships, uh, meetings. You have to have some roundtables. You have to be there a couple of days, spend time, see a team, interact. I might take a team after I watch them practice, and I might talk about their their player-to-player relationships. How do they communicate with each other? How does a coach and the players communicate? How the coaches communicate from coach to coach? You know, once you observe teams, I think you can give something back to that team to help it become a better better program and better teams. So those are the types of things that we do. And as I said, I think it benefits everybody. It's it's always good to get a different set of eyes on your program, uh, you know, especially hopefully from somebody that's been coaching as long as I coach. A lot of stuff to digest, and I'm sure it's going to be great for people to dive into that. One of the things that I think I'm interested in that you just said, though, is what you shouldn't do. So what are some things young coaches shouldn't do that, that you see that they do now? Well, I think so many coaches today, Adam, pin their hopes on, on, uh, look, I can recruit. Here are the guys that I've recruited. Well, first of all, you didn't recruit that player. Your school recruited him. Your head coach recruited him. Uh, your, your institution recruited him. Your, maybe your alumni helped uh, establish a rela- you know, relationship or a uh, tradition. Your school itself might have been the reason that that's, that person came there. So, you know, uh, don't put notches in your holster. Uh, don't try to talk about individual. You know, get to the team level. You ask your players to be uh, team players, as a coach, you have to be a team guy. You have to put your players and their needs and their families' needs ahead of all your personal needs. And if you can do that, you're going to be a very good coach. And, and the process will take care of itself. When your team has success, everybody gets credit. So those are the kind of the, the, the what not to do. And, uh, you know, I, there's other things maybe in terms of players. Too, you tell players, there's, you know, you don't take shortcuts. Uh, players today want shortcuts. They want to, they want to get to the league. They want to uh, circumvent some things, but you know they never think about the day when the air goes out of the ball, and maybe they get an injury. You know, you've got to make players think about being a little more selfish with their education, selfish with the relationships. Dave Bing taught me this years ago when I was back at Eastern. He came back and talked to our players, and he said, you know, when I was an NBA player, uh, you know, I spent time with not NBA players. I spent time with business people, doctors, lawyers, people developing their businesses. I wanted to learn everything I could because I knew one day that I wasn't going to be a pro player. And, and, you know, obviously Dave Bing went on to become president of Bing Steel, and now he's the mayor of Detroit doing great things for his city. So, you know, if you really truly want to be great, you've you got to look beyond just the basketball. And that's 
that's the message. You know, I think that's a mistake people look at it. They become so consumed with just basketball. They don't let, they don't use basketball. Uh, they get something to get used by basketball and you can't let that happen. You've got to use basketball as a, as a vehicle, as a tool to better your life. And, you know, certainly that, that's a message I have is that basketball can be a great tool to open the door for you, but you got to let it work for you. You can't shortchange that process. And, you know, there's so many other things I'd like to see too, not just with the, the programs changes. I'd like to see some changes on the NCAA. That's a whole other subject. I don't know if we have time for that, but there, there's some changes I think that could help some of these kids and some of these coaches as well in their institution. Like what? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. For one, I've been an advocate. I don't believe there should be conference tournaments. I think that they should do away with postseason conference tournaments. I think everybody should get to an NCAA tournament. It puts less pressure on the players, coaches, and be less guys worrying about their jobs. I think everybody would love to play in an NCAA tournament. I think if you played and won your league championship, you should get a bye. Your league, winning a league championship should be the why do you play a conference schedule if there's no reward for winning your conference. Today, it doesn't make any difference if you win a conference championship. It's what you do in the postseason. And I'll never forget when Bobby Huggins had the best team in the country and they had to play in a conference tournament and they lost uh, you know, their best player uh, to an injury and they never ended up getting a chance to play for that championship that I'm sure he would have won. It's just, you know, why play a team a third time in a meaningless game when you're already going to be in a tournament? So I'd like to see those changes take place. Uh, I'd definitely like to see more rivalry games. I'd like to see maybe the Power Five conferences or whatever they are, you know, they obviously can play and make money in their conferences, but the other 300 teams in the country don't make that kind of money. I'd like to see those conferences play more rival games, play more regional games where they're not traveling all over the country. You know, I talked to Tim Floyd today. What a great thing that UTEP is playing New Mexico State, which they've been playing 100-plus years, and they play every year. They're not in the same league, but they play twice a year, not just once. And their fans travel. It's a big game. Uh, I think more teams should do that. Rice and Houston have been playing for 100 years. Let's, let's let teams play that have been playing, create rivalries, and keep them close to home, save money, uh, save time, and, and create significant games for your players, your fans, your coaches, your institutions. So I'd like to see some of those, you know, some of those changes uh, – kind of going to uh, take place. Well, Coach, I want to wrap some of this up. Just have a couple quick questions for you. First of all, from a player's perspective, you've mentored so many kids. If you were speaking to a high school player who was a, a fairly good high school basketball player and had advice about playing college basketball, what advice would you give a player like that? Well, I'd have to, again, uh, you know, appeal to that player to not listen to you know, too many voices. That player, uh, certainly listen to your family, listen to your high school coach, but, you know, understand who you are and what are the things that are important to you. Uh, you, you know, what's important in your life in terms of academics? You know, what do you want to pursue? If basketball were taken away from you, uh, you know, where would you want to go to school? If for some reason the game was taken away, either through injury or something happened, would you still want to be at that school? Would you want to play for that coach? Would that coach, would that program help you away from the game? Would you have opportunities outside of basketball? I'd ask players to look at to look at that. You have to look at a big picture. Uh, are there coaches on that staff that would be there for you? You know, if all of a sudden you're not scoring points or dribbling the basketball, that's important. Uh, are you in a community that you that would be supportive of you uh, if you weren't playing? Uh, is that community only going to support you as long as you play basketball for that team? You know, you want to be in a, in a supportive environment. So. So those are the kinds of things that I would challenge players to look at. And, you know, is it important for you? And, 
uh, you know, down the line, uh, you know, where where will your you know, what will your legacy be too? Where do you want to be that you can serve and, and and create something for other people when when you stop playing the game? And you know, what do you want to do with your life after basketball? So that's part of what should go in your decision. There's no question you should look at a program that has a tradition, uh, successful coaches. If getting the NBA is one of your goals. That should definitely be in the mix, but it can't be 100% of it. It's got to be, you know, what school gives you that opportunity to do all of those things? And if you find a school that can give you those opportunities, and, and maybe it's not even the NBA or playing professionally, maybe it's a school that, you know, that can afford you some uh, academic and social opportunities, then, then think about those things. Don't don't just be pigeonholed and, and, and look at things one-dimensionally. You want to be a not a one-dimensional person. You want to have as many things going for yourself as you can. And, and so that's the advice I give, and I have given players. I I've actually made a couple of my assistants mad. I've had recruiting lists together, given it to a player, and the player might have said, I don't think this school's for me. And my player, my <laughs> assistant coach says, why did you give that list to that player? Now he's not choosing us. And I, my answer back to my assistant coaches was, and then this wasn't a good school for them. If I had to trick that player to come here or, or sell something that we don't have, uh, then, then this is not a good school, and that player was going to be unhappy here. So I think in the end, you give players the best advice. It doesn't always work out, and you may lose some players along the way, but a player comes to play for you, it should be for the right reasons. Uh, they should feel comfortable in your program. They should feel like they're excited to be there, and they should they should feel like they can excel there. So that's that's kind of what, uh, to me, is important when you give young players and young coaches advice about recruiting and picking schools and how to go about th- this process. Now I can see why you are such a successful recruiter. It makes all, all the sense in the world. Now, last question for you, Coach, and it's sort of away from basketball, but I'm going to turn it back to basketball. Even though I've known you, I didn't know this about you, that your father, Zev, is an accomplished movie producer. So, Well, yeah, he could have helped you, Adam. You didn't. You should have known that a long time ago when he, he, he had you in the movie business. Uh, yes, he was. He, he, uh, he's done it for years. I'm just curious, uh, with the success that he's had, what is it that you learned from him and that you took with you in your career? Well, a lot. Number one, he's a people guy. Uh, I, I respect him greatly. And by the way, he just put out a film last year at his age. He's 87, and he just he, he got uh, did the Gabby Douglas story that their family wasn't going to authorize anybody, but uh, their mother authorized it to my father, and he did it for lifetime. So I was very proud that my dad was able to get that program. And my dad's always done that. He's, he's always done films that were meaningful. Uh, he's never run out for the Hollywood dollar. He, he's always done what he thought were meaningful projects, meaningful shows. He did tour duty that would touch the life of so many Vietnam vets and really dealt with the situation that many, many TV shows never did, but he did. And he had vets crying in his office and just thanking him for putting that show together. And uh, he's had great relationships over the years. But I, I think that's what I've learned is that Number one, you follow your passion. He was a very successful businessman in Chicago, gave up a family business to pursue his dream, which was to get into uh, you know, film production. Uh, his first cousin, uh, you know, Phil Kaufman, many people might know, uh, who did the right stuff. He did Henry and June, their first cousins. And, and they both uh, decided to go into film at the same time. So I have a pretty talented family in film. Um, and, and I'm just proud of the way that both, he and my dad went into the business. They, they've always done artistic films. They've always uh, never cheated the, the industry. They've, they've, they've been legitimate. Um, they've had great relationships, people that worked for them, people that they discovered. My dad discovered, uh, you know, Jodie Foster. He's with Jodie in one of her first movies, Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, a, a classic movie. And uh, he and Jodie Foster are still close to this day. So uh, I'm just proud of the way he's been able to keep up his relationships. He's taught me to follow my passion. He never pushed me. 
into something. He was happy I chose uh, athletics and coaching and playing, you know, but he never pushed me. He wanted me to follow what my passion was. And uh, he was just as happy when I was teaching uh, high school and college English. I taught at both levels. But he's been proud of uh, the fact that his, all his sons and his daughter have followed their, their uh, you know, uh, path to their passions and their careers. So uh, it's a good, been a good lesson for me. And uh, um, I'll always take that with me. It, in this world, if you have good relationships, a lot's possible. But you you got to have good relationships. You know, you... Uh, and he got that from his father, my great my grandfather Julius Braun, who my son's named after. He said, "When you when you strike up a deal, if that deal only benefits you, it's not a very good deal." And I said, "Well, you might make a lot of money." He said, "I don't care. It's short lived. That customer will never come back to you. It's a bad deal. That deal's got to be as good for your customers as it is for you. And uh, even if you make less, you make sure your customers are happy. They respect you, and they respect your business. And uh, we had a bottling business bottling business in Chicago." W. Braun Company, and it was founded on that premise that he was going to do good things for people and fair things. You were going to treat people fairly, and that's why the business was so successful for so long. So I, I kind of got that from my grandfather and through my father, through, through me. You want to have uh, relationships that are long-lasting that uh, you know don't just benefit you. they got to benefit both parts. Well, it makes so much sense now why you've had so much success coaching college basketball and, and why you've connected with, with uh, so many young men through the years. And I think you, your father obviously has a lot to be proud of. I, I really appreciate you coming on coach Ben Braun. People can catch you on Twitter at coach Ben Braun coach. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I had a blast talking to you. Well, I great Adam. I appreciate what you do and don't be surprised if you still see me talking about my Chicago Cubs. And I'm going to say it. You heard it here on your podcast next year's the year. Next year's the year. That works for me. All right, Coach. Thanks so much. Thank you, Adam. Really enjoyed speaking with Coach Ben Braun. A lot of interesting things he had to say about his journey. Just a lot of fun, and I really appreciate all the time and uh, the honesty that that Coach Braun just just offered up. You can catch me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at Naismith Lives. You can catch this podcast on Twitter at Great Point Pod. And most importantly, you've got to subscribe to us on iTunes. You'll have these podcasts pop up as soon as we have one ready. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.